How to Think Sonically On the Generativity of the Flesh by Holger Schulze As I am writing and rereading this chapter, it is rather early on a hot summer's morning and I mostly hear heavy traffic outside my window. I am still waking up, a hot cup of tea with sugar and milk at my side. It seems that I selectively try to exclude these rather unwanted noises right now, this mixture of accelerating cars and a steadily humming hard drive, but they are present all the same. Composed and intentionally designed sound is shaping this moment together with a whole lot of unwanted noise, forming a whole of almost indiscernible sounds. Before you started reading this chapter, you might have browsed over some of the other contributions to this volume. Doing that, you might have fantasized about this sound or that sound, from the 19th century, from ancient cultures, or archaeologically and forensically reconstructed and imagined soundscapes. While doing so, you might have been enveloped in a drone of sounds from your hard drive, from the outside traffic, your mobile phone and from the upstairs neighbors. These sounds constitute the wild and erratic population of everyday listening, which have not been domesticated, neither aesthetically nor discursively and not at all technically until recently. Your and my listening experience consists of largely contradictory, mingled and highly dynamic sound events, sonic drones and threats of listening. Might contingency and mingledness be some of the foremost qualities of this erratic population you call sound? Quoting Gertrude Stein There are many ways of making kinds of men and women. In each way of making kinds of them, there is a different system of finding them resembling. Sometime there will be here every way there can be of seeing kinds of men and women. Sometime there will be then a complete history of each one. Everyone always is repeating the whole of them and so sometimes someone who sees them will have a complete history of everyone. Sometimes someone will know all the ways there are for people to be resembling. Someone sometime then will have a complete history of everyone. I hear Gertrude Stein's voice right now. And you will encounter her voice again later in this chapter. The mingledness of my individual listening experience right now throws me in midst of the paradoxes of sonic research. Research on sound is often motivated by the noble if not paradoxical ambition to think with, through and beyond sounds all at once. In the 20th century, various artists and composers, instrumentalists and architects, engineers and mathematicians did extensive research on sound. 
starting with R. Murray Schaefer's bold ambition to archive and analyze the soundscapes of the world, passing a number of more elitist approaches to sound from the realm of composition and sound art, for example, Born 1995, arriving at a series of more traditional academic approaches to understanding sounds by means of culturally reflected and historically informed inquiries based on field research and critical analysis. In the early 21st century, the authors of this volume, and probably many of its readers, live in a world where a lot of audio a rather barbarian reduction implying total inclusion, is being transmitted, researched on and post-produced in almost every single second in a wide variety of cultures all around the planet. New mixtures of analog and digital media, of ancient and cutting-edge forms of performance, new technologies, new gadgets, new products and software applications are being developed. In this maelstrom of auditory extravaganza or sonic ennui, as some prefer to call it, one question seems to remain unanswered. It is a question that concerns the very foundations of the reflexivity of the research in sound. How is sonic research in the strictest sense possible? Could it be necessary to approach the often separated areas of sonic research, for instance the auditory in everyday life, in design, in the arts, in perception, as one cohesive research field? How can it be possible that an entity like sound, resoluting out of physical movements, processes and actions, often initiated by creatures one could call anthropoid or humanoid is investigated by an individual research practice like listening? Could it be appropriate to think any material sounding and any researcher listening as one cohesive aggregation, a zonic corpus? Sirens and ringtones inhabit this edifice. The effects of actual sonic vibrancy can be scary, disturbing, even humiliating and disorienting from time to time. But were it not precisely such experiences which guided many researchers into this whole new unsettling field of research in the first place? Is a larger truck driving down the road? Or is it the neighbor's kids who are jumping up and down? Can you do research on sounds while immersed in exactly these sounds? How could it thus be possible to do research on sounds that leave more traditional logocentric approaches of academia behind and indeed proceeds by thinking and researching sonically and not verbally, visually, diagrammatically? Would that not qualify as a trembling resonance in research, disturbing and scattering research practices, scientific entities and academic dispositives? Could you imagine a post-logocentric aesthetic, lest a post-logocentric theory of the auditory? 
or in other words. How could one imagine thinking sonically? Thinking with, through and beyond sounds. Firstly, and as an outline of the remainder of this chapter, thinking sonically could be narrowed down to a process which is a. not reducible to mere alphanumeric logocentric translations or Aufschreibesysteme. Physically inscribed and visually represented numbers, letters, words or mathematical operations are literally not what one listens to. As a consequence, sonic thinking implies a genuine sonic approach, which is b. not ignorant of how specific and highly dynamic spatial environments shape and condition one's experience. Sound is always experienced in particular situations and not in abstract graphs, flowcharts or statistical distributions. This sonic way of thinking, moreover, should see not ignore the fundamentally corporeal character of auditory experiences for anthropoids as the factual main listeners in research, because their bodies are in fact their primary and very material receivers, amplifiers and interpreters of sound. Finally, Sonic thinking should d. not be ignorant of the imagination and its sensorial and proprioceptive aspects as sound resonates with the entire anthropoid's body whose various senses are not too easily separated from one another. These four implications for sonic thinking will guide my investigation. Quote, Everyone always is repeating the whole of them and so sometimes someone who sees them will have a complete history of everyone. Sometimes someone will know all the ways there are for people to be resembling. Someone sometime then will have a complete history of everyone. End of quote. Following this, the present chapter is a sort of a memento audio. What could be the crucial methodologies concerning central epistemological and ontological questions within sound studies? How to think spatially To think sonically is not isolated from other epistemological changes and challenges in current theoretical discourse. It is part of a broader effort, which has been going on now for almost two decades, mainly related to developments in research on performativity, on emotion and on the cultural history of sciences and humanities. Examining sonic thinking hence leads to an issue recurrently addressed in recent efforts of cultural research. How to think spatially. How can a researcher find a way to articulate and to discuss sound and reflection as generally defined by and generated in and emanating from specific spatial constellations of materials? Sound events are spatial by definition. 
but reflections on sound events avoid too easily their particular spatial and non-spatial implications. At present, there is a specific group of sounds which oscillate between and are propagated through these buildings in ways that makes them hard to localize. They seem to almost flood the spaces and chambers, as they are permanently present in every single instant. One might therefore quite easily forget them. Nevertheless, they might produce a general tension or even an unease, which both permeates and perforates one's body. I do not feel well in this room as soon as you turn on the video projector. The windows seem to be stifling closed. It feels like a coffin in here. The static humming and high-frequency buzzing of the loudspeakers and the screens are around us engulfs me and almost chokes me. As a researcher, one has to accept that all of her or his thinking and reflection is situated per se. It is spatial and located as it is individual and personal, even if skillfully camouflaged. There is no such thing as a consistently abstract and non-situated thinking, unrelated to the person inhabited by thought, though Western philosophy, as well as a number of administrative logics, might have wanted us to believe otherwise and still does so from time to time in various publication formats and situations of public discourse. In fact, to recognize this as a mere camouflage of a postulated non-sitativity in academia is a major leap. To actually accept the inherent performative reality of research might provide, if applied with a sensible subtlety, a way more complex and critically reflected road to understanding sound cultures and historiographies of listening. The Sociology of Spaces or Raumsoziologie of Martina Löw might be a first step into this new realm of situated research on sound. Löw explores how humanoids are, on the one hand, phenomenologically situated and on the other, how they construct and situate the spaces in which they find themselves. As anthropoid, one generates this physical order via two operations, the first of which Löw calls spacing, describing the mental apprehension of the distribution of locations of different objects, beings and processes. The other operation she terms syntheseleistung or achievement of synthesis, meaning the formation of a coherent impression of a situation which one might call a space. More specifically, in 2007, Barry Blesser, the inventor and programmer of the first digital reverberation algorithm, published the outlines of an approach to an oral architecture, which does not primarily operate on the visual or sculptural domains, but proceeds via the auditory. Even for the architectural practices of the 2010s, this is a 
still a bold claim, seeing that architecture still relies heavily on the cultural techniques of drawing, physical scale modeling, 2D blueprints and rather static 3D rendering. In his volume, Blesser succeeds in finding a specific language to describe how human beings experience architectural settings orally without reinvoking well-known terminology or the schematics of building acoustics and room acoustics. Among other things, Blesser proposes that one reflects on the acoustic horizon, in which one hears a limit of the audible which is not presented by visual walls or other optical or physical hindrances. He also proposes a way to analyze how an edifice can be orally illuminated by sounds. A building, he argues, does not sound by itself, but needs to be activated via sound. Though such terminology might still be regarded as being full of visual metaphors, it nevertheless changes the concept of space by directing one's attention towards a sonic form of propagation and a genuinely oral way of perceiving the propagations of sound. Oral architecture as a set of terms and descriptions allows for a spatial analysis of experiencing sound. Finally, I'd like to introduce a term here that the German media researcher, musicologist and trained jazz musician Rolf Grossmann coined in 2008. His concept of the auditory dispositive, auditivus dispositiv, is capable of radically directing one's perspective towards a spatial analysis of sound. It becomes an approach that takes the very material and physical nature of auditory effects and processes into account. At this very moment of reading, for instance, you could be part of the auditory dispositive of a library or an office space. Both locations and spaces have their own regulations, their historical predecessors and their ethical and moral codes which pile up to a whole anthropological concept of what human beings should be doing in such spaces. Take the situation of the library. As an auditory dispositive, this spatial arrangement is related to the history of designing and building places for, for example, philological research, for detailed close reading and an intensely, if not intimately, executed analysis of texts and documents. The architecture of shelves and tables, lamps and chairs, of draperies and aisles are all spatial arrangements that provide essential elements to what constitutes library proper. All its material, its geometrical and its ornamental appearances thus provide a specific oral architecture that frames, distorts and focuses your and my listening and reading activity. The silence postulated in buildings for storing books and analyzing texts is thus of a very specific historical quality. This auditory dispositive implies and demands 
the bodily tension of a concentrated reader from its visitors and users, a reader who might easily be irritated or distracted. At the same time, it also implies that a state of non-silence, of noise and babble, would be distractive to any reader and that distraction would result in an inadequate form of concentration for textual analysis and proper academic work. The silence of the library, having its origins in the history of work and prayer rituals in monasteries, is thus a moralizing silence. A silence that almost automatically implies worshipping of the individual text and of the whole archive of stored texts. Reading in the library is probably the most prominent reverential, if not religious, activity in Western writing culture besides writing itself, of course. Consequentially, Whenever one is in a library, one tries to discipline bodily movements and minds to grasp the meaning of the words one is reading. I try to avoid making noises, moving my body, whistling or finger snapping in order not to distract the activity of reading. Even a presumably all-silent activity like reading has its highly spatial and material sound practice connected to it, which, in this case, is mainly a practice of non-sound. The approaches by Grossmann, Blesser or Löw all stress that a sound event and a listening experience take place in a specific spaces and situations. Moreover, Any sound event can only be materially manifest in a specific physical situation, be it a concert venue, an art gallery, a tablet computer with pull-out speakers or a pair of headphones. The materiality of the situation in which a specific noise propagates is crucial. One cannot speak substantially about a listening experience without also describing and analyzing the specific material and physical situation, including, but not limited to, the architecture, technologies and designs in which the experience takes place. In thinking spatially and sonically, one then focuses on the auditory dispositive and the oral architecture as the historically, culturally and materially determined and thus highly situated and immersive conditions of any sonic experience. How to think corporeally Within this material framework and the immersive and situated positions it offers, one can hardly avoid speaking of a genuinely corporeal quality of listening. It is the individual's anthropoid's flesh, a brute physical and material existence in a certain space, in a particular place and with a specific corporeal condition that is the actual means of access to a spatial thinking. Following the argument on speciality, the second methodological challenge becomes the question of how to think corporeally. 
How can a th reflection on sound manage not only to articulate and discuss theoretical propositions on the nature of sound, but also reflect the highly individual and idiosyncratic bodily aspects of sounding and listening? Imagine this situation. You are in a room talking with some friends and colleagues. Suddenly, one of your colleagues silently points at the ceiling. You may be surprised that she or he would do such a thing, but you follow the direction of the index finger and realize that it is pointing to the video projector hanging from the ceiling, still projecting an image onto the wall at which no one looks anymore. Though you heard it all along, you now realize that the video projector's cooling fan has been getting continuously louder for a minute or so. Actually listening to this noise now, you are also becoming aware why it seemed as if the words of the person pointing at the projector barely left his or her mouth. She barely heard the words herself, let alone the possibility of you understanding what was said. The oral architecture of this space was darkened, It was grayed out by this continuous humming noise. Only now you realize how uncomfortable you perceived the space for the past moments. The rather banal growing noise from the projector had a certain influence on your and others' self-perception and on your kinesthetic and proprioceptive bodily felt sense. Compare Gendlin, 1992. The fundamental question implied here is, how does one perform her or his auditory bodily sensorium via specific techniques du corps? To explore this question, one might turn to Jean-Luc Nancy's reflection on the status of the humanoid's body in the contemporary culture developed in corpus. Here, Nancy argues that the Western concept of the body as a signifying structure, deeply rooted in Christian religion, in Western writing culture and in cultural and technological practices, is currently undergoing a major transformation. Among the major causes of this transformation are global developments that confront us with non-Western concepts of the body, with the experience of expanding mass societies and with a vast amount of non-traditional cultures worldwide. This newly discovered sensorial subtlety of the body, or Leib, is reflected in the term tension that Nancy introduces in characterizing this corpus. By this term, he differentiates the dead corpse of Western anatomical analysis from the living, interacting and interpenetrating bodies in cultures traditionally not adhering to a Christianized writing culture. Nancy writes, When the body is no longer alive, has no more tonus, it either passes into rigor mortis, cadavers, rigidity, or into the inconsistency of rotting. Being a body is being a certain tone, a certain tension. 
I'd also even say that attention is also a tending. End of quote. Tension and tonus. Tone is his definition of a living body. Stressing this individual tension leads him in other writings to reflect on how listening, as a cultural practice in general and as a specific form of habitus, shapes individual thinking today on the fringe. Quote, to be listening is always to be on the edge of meaning or in an edgy meaning of extremity and as if the sound were precisely nothing else than this edge, this fringe, this margin. End of quote. According to Nancy, corporeal thinking means that one has to abandon the bold assumption that there could be any action, including any thought, that would not be rooted in a culturally specific, a genuinely marginal and fringy resonance. A resonance of the situation and its meaning. Quote, Sound that is musically listened to, that is gathered and scrutinized for itself, not, however, as an acoustic phenomenon or not merely as one, but as a resonant meaning, a meaning whose sense is supposed to be found in resonance and only in resonance. End of quote. This resonance is always responding in specific relation to its own history in its own particular situation and thus it can be observed in individual bodily actions and attached to corporeal sensibilities and idiosyncrasies. Expanding this view beyond the subject would mean that theories on sound as resonance would have to be regarded as theories on situated and corporeal interactions between creatures, things and physical events manifest in resonating vibrations anthropoids like to call sounds. Individual bodies react to noises of any electrical, mechanical or electronic machine nearby, for example a video projector. They are embedded in a resonating nexus, a vibrational force. And yours, as well as my thinking, are put in motion by these generative forces. A monist or perceptually radical epistemology is then implicit to the writings by Steve Goodman and Jean-Luc Nancy as a symmetrical anthropology. A symmetrical and as such post-anthropocentric anthropology operates culturally and historically reflected to questions the condition humane, the condition of the human in culture, not to explore this condition with a normative approach, but to relate a humanoid and its body within a dense materially and corporeally resonating field of possibilities, flexibilities and other relations of the human. This effort to emphasize present materialities as an indispensable ground for culture is a major issue of the so-called new materialism. It differs largely from phenomenological studies undeviatingly adhering to a predominance of an anthropoid actor. 
Listening and sounding exchanges this assumed humanoid predominance for a sonic dominance. The corporeal situation of listening addresses a particular sonic bodily felt sense manifest in sound practices that is beyond any verbal articulation a sonic corpus following Nancy. Eugene T. Gendlin, psychologist and phenomenologist who proposed the term bodily felt sense for such corporeal manifestations of proprioceptivity, summarizes the multiple forms of knowledge inherent in this bodily felt sense as follows. Quote, any situation, any bit of practice, implies much more than has ever been said. End of quote. In this very minute, for instance, while I am working on this chapter, the neighbors above seem to be listening to a rather urgently swinging and grooving Bob Marley song which I cannot identify precisely. The ceiling of our apartment seems to abate and to filter the sound, letting only the most significant and deep vocal and bass frequencies get through. The sonic signature of a characteristic Bob Marley production. Luckily, I do not feel disrupted by this vibration entering my working space against my wish. Instead, I have to smile, remembering former situations in my life in which I have, maybe even intentionally, had to listen to this music. And I remember once attending an impressive presentation given by Jason Stanyak and Benjamin Picot on the question, what can a male do if digitally zombified as a part of a posthumous duet? I feel rather lucky and privileged to be able to incorporate this otherwise potentially annoying sonic intervention in my current writing situation as a quite appropriate example of this second remark on the corporeal aspects of sonic epistemologies. Due to this association, my neighbor's taste in music on this early Monday's afternoon in tune has a quite generative impact on my writing. The generativity of this sound entering the realm of my private space precisely exemplifies the spatial and corporeal aspects of a listening situation. As such, this tiny intervention shows the main fundamental generative potential in focusing on a listening and sounding situation in all its spatial, corporeal and situated aspects which are to be found at the aforementioned intersections between the writings of Nancy, Goodman and Gendlin. These aspects imply what I would like to call the sonic corpus as concept of a materialist anthropology of idiosyncratic, sensible interferences and interpenetrations between related sound actors. How to think beyond logocentrism. Both the transformations of and challenges to epistemology discussed in the two sections so far led to an issue which has been at stake in critical theory for quite some time now. But not until recently has it seemed that the discourse, the productive techniques and the practices within sound studies were blossoming in such a way that one might turn to the problems inherent 
to focusing on reductive language-related and syllogistic models of understanding sound or the senses in general. Whereas in academia these are the primary forms in which arguments are presented, questioned and discussed, it becomes more and more obvious that such an approach tends to reproduce clichés and even an essentialism of structure when applied to the sensory experience of anthropoids. Arguing with the senses implies the logic of ever-multiplying values that cannot be subsumed by structuralist approaches. Let me give you an example of a situation where a specific sound event, which I can look at and listen to, takes place. For instance, my experience of how the Autolith group presented their latest video essay titled People to be resembling at the Haus der Kunst in Munich. In standing in front of the screen watching this video, in listening to the accompanying music recorded by Don Terry, Colin Walcott and Nana Vasconcelos in 1978, in listening to a recording of Gertrude Stein reading a passage from The Making of Americans on top of this musical piece, there are many ways of making kinds of men and women. And in watching photographs shown in the video from the original recording sessions in Ludwigsburg in 1970s sorting the celluloid and the photographic negatives, in doing all of this, I just go with the flow of this essayistic video. I might not identify all the details at first sight or sound, but I like to take my time for this heterogeneous and highly contingent meeting of sensory artifacts. And I like to enjoy the sheer qualities of colors and noises, of cuts and layers, of astonishing sound events, compositional structures and inspiringly developing connections between moving images, sounds, words and flow. After the video has ended, I feel soothed. I feel refreshed and I am full of questions, phrases and ideas, possible arguments and possible worlds in which this artifact would make sense to me. But I take my time. I do not rush. With both expert and background knowledge at hand, I might now be able to elaborate a bit on this work by Odolith in words and in arguments. How it might have been historically constructed how it might be technologically advanced or outdated, how I might link it to a more original or a more restricted theoretical model of sound. I may even be able to describe how a communication process is put forward by the specific listening and watching situation implied by the piece. And I might do this by scrutinizing the semiotic operations dominating this piece or the mathematical operations equally dominant, especially in Stein's text that is actually based on algorithmic operations. All of this might even be of a certain interest to some of the readers of this chapter. But still, would it be of any relevance to a situation in which you would actually listen to this piece? There might be instances of sound art and video art in which historical, contextual and referential clarifications would change 
an individual's inspiration by or rejection of a particular work. But there are, I assume, a lot more cases in which such additional information surely will not change my experience at all. This fact, which might be hard to swallow for the majority of academics, is exactly the main argument of the mathematician, cultural historian and philosopher Michel Serre in La Cinque Sainte from 1985. In his volume, he argues very clearly that a researcher's and as homme or femme de lettres, but also just as a common man in writing cultures. One has to be aware of what one is convincingly able to say and write about something, however vigorous, energetic or fervent it may be, might in the end not be close to truth at all. It could as easily be a merely pretty-sounding theoretical artifact, sensorially detached, and actually contradicted by experience. Such a habit of speaking and writing rapidly and fluently Serre names the golden mouth, la bouche d'or. This golden mouth speaks eloquently and it has convincing arguments and concise descriptions quick at hand at any given moment. Though this might seem a quite desirable ability, Serre sees this as one of the most harmful deformations professionnelles of academia and research. And surely he is right. He proposes a massive slowdown. Instead of letting yourself being taken over too fast by your own habitual phrases and arguments, your knowledge and your ideas, he proposes that one takes her or his time to simply perceive, to let an experience sink in to get a genuinely profound and radiating sense of what is actually taking place around us at this very instant. Such an extended, intense and also exclusive experience, such an epoche, harbors the potential of a far more inspiring understanding and interpretation of the sensory events going on around you a potential that can be explicated at a later point. Sarah is therefore making a plea for a situated empiricism and sensualism and for the epistemic value of pure experience. This emphasis on the continuity between sensing and thinking, between experience and reflection, is a late resonance of the radical empiricism William James proposed a century ago. James then insisted, similar to Serre, on an experiential continuity that needed not to overcome any separation between experience and reasoning. Quote, There is in general no separatedness needing to be overcome by an external cement. And whatever separatedness is actually experienced is not overcome. It stays and counts as separatedness to the end. But the metaphor serves to symbolize 
the fact that experience itself, taken at large, can grow by its edges. That one moment of it proliferates into the next by transitions which, whether conjunctive or disjunctive, continue the experiential tissue cannot, I contend, be denied. Life is in the transitions as much as in the terms connected. Often, indeed, it seems to be there more emphatically as if your spurts and sallies forward where the real firing line of the battle were like the thin line of flame advancing across the dry autumnal field which the farm proceeds to burn. In this line, we live prospectively as well as retrospectively. It is of the past in as much as it comes expressly as the present's continuation. It is of the future insofar as the future, when it comes, will have continued it. End of quote. Such transitions of one's experience, prospectively as well as retrospectively, are not per se covered by a verbal argument, but rather by a narration, by poetry or by the arts. So to hesitate and to progress only after having granted yourself the time to experience something and to deliberately scrutinize the transitions of such a process, that is the proposition which both James and Serre make. For both, the experiential is a fundamental and generative force as it contributes to or even is the creation of meaning. This generative quality of a situated experience can be observed as soon as one invents new and very specific rich statements in language for describing any sensory experience. This language does not emerge out of the matrix of known phrases, idioms and vocabularies, but out of a truly inspiring, situated and often erratic experience which leaves us speechless, maybe stuttering or blushing. I listen again to the recording of Gertrude Stein's voice. I turn again to people to be resembling. It seems to me as if I am hearing very soft and tiny, almost nanoscopic noises, incredibly evanescent and yet very present. Sounds that may be recording of someone flicking through the photographs and photographic negatives. I'm not sure whether I actually do hear these noises or if I'm imagining them whilst watching the video. Watching it once more, I still hear them. I like them and I like to indulge in them. For maybe a minute or so, they seem to me to be the most striking and impressive element in this video. This impression, of course, changes again soon after. Drawing on Serre, James and Gendlin, it seems that sonic thinking also emphasizes the experiential and generative sides of listening and sounding in C2. This means that as a supplement to, or maybe even in spite of, the undoubtedly powerful discourses implemented in contemporary cultures, it is necessary not to neglect the status of the individual experience of a phenomenon. 
To understand this as a merely arbitrary or only subjective experience would be to underestimate the non-arbitrary qualities of individual experience and individual subjectivities. As such, it only goes to show how contemporary logocentric research and writing culture often neglect via individual speakers and protagonists the fact that no humanoid could possibly be capable of experiencing this world as a well-tempered, objective and neatly organized model of arguments and examples. Instead, one encounters the world as a succession of individual, incredibly tiny and particular situations and experiences which might be erratic and scary, hasty and hectic, lame and boring, eluding and inspiring, all in surprising comminglings. Stressing these experiential moments in combination with their contextualization and historization might provide a subtle and inspiring empirical foundation as a way to start and to guide a sonic analysis. Such an analysis, corporeal and blatantly aware of the pitfalls of its own logocentrism, seems to be far more appropriate to the field of the sonic than one which would proceed exclusively to describe the lines of signal processing, the communication processes or the information theories behind sonic events. To transcend such generalizing and abstraction-driven scripted experience, This scripted evidence would then equip researchers with the means of articulating, of reflecting and of manifesting specific experiences within a particular sonic situation. To write such a thick description, such an intense and personal narration of an auditory experience and one's highly idiosyncratic, explorative, essayistic reflections on it, is then to think imaginatively offering experientiality and generativity as means to transcend scripted, traditional and logocentric discourses on the sonic. How to think imaginatively So far, thinking about sound has led me to a discussion of aspects of spatiality, of corporeality, and of logocentrism in research and in the arts. At the end of the previous section, it seemed that an individual imaginary, incorporating both a bodily self-perception and a sense of spatial situations, could have the potential to play a major part in research on the sonic. Quote, That humming background sound is ancient, the ringing of a huge bell exploding into a mass of intensely hot matter, pulsing out vast sound waves, contracting and expanding the matter, heating where compressed, cooling where it was less dense. This descending tone parallels the heat death of the universe, connecting all the discrete atoms into a vibrational wave. This Cosmic background radiation is the echo of the Big Bang. End of quote. In the year 13.7 billion before our time, Steve Goodman, the author of these lines, was not yet born, 
nor was any other anthropoid or any of its predecessors. Nor did anything exist which one could name earth or planet or even locatable matter. The author is very vividly describing a moment just briefly after the Big Bang, or should I say, the author is imagining it. Any author legitimates the relevance of his or her writing, not least by the relevance of the objects of description he or she chooses. For instance, writing about international politics, important inventors and entrepreneurs, or major inventions of science, has for a long time been deemed far more relevant tasks for historiography than writing about social and everyday practices of maintaining a larger family household, more important than the subtle interactions in teaching and a lot more important than the arduous work of cleaning the work environment for a large group of people. But the contemporary social field within which any author writes is the main determinant of the ascription of such relevance and importance. Thus, writing about the Big Bang can be quite joyful and, at the same time, it is a strong proclamation of the author's assumed relevance. But yet, Goodman integrates his interpretation of the Big Bang in the latter part of the first third of his book. Hillel Schwartz goes a bold step further as he starts his cultural history of making noise with age-old narrations of the Big Bang and of creational situations in mythology and literature. His book thus resembles an ultimate encyclopedia of unwanted sounds, an unholy book of noises. In the paragraph by Goodman cited above and in similar passages written by Schwartz, the imaginative versatility and the rhetorical skill of its author affect me as a reader immediately and deeply. While reading Goodman's paragraph, I am actually teleported through time, by my imagination, to the situation briefly after the Big Bang. It makes me try to imagine at least some elements of its auditory and sensory quality. The pervasive effect an imaginative text might have on us, the narrative immersion, the experiencing via imagination, has been quite a well-known fact and poetic technique in literary writing for ages and across different genres and cultures. But in many fields of research, outside of ethnographic field research for instance, It might be a rather surprising but yet effective approach to analysis, not only in retrospect but also in synchronic approaches. Experientiality and generativity take effect as soon as a sensorial experience catches our attention. In this moment, one's body, or to be more precise, one's flesh, the empire of the senses, guides the thinking a sonic, a corporeal epistemology. Here I am obviously following the train of thought that Merleau-Ponty laid out in his late works on the body and on the imagination. In these he explored, which is in close proximity to the thinking of Jean-Luc Nancy, how anthropoids perceive themselves not as the signifying and tidily constructed bodily machines known from anatomy, 
but more as a sensory formation in flesh. Humanoids, as you and me, do not actually live in lococentrically arranged and immovable structures of bodily functions. On the contrary, at any given moment, one is experiencing a quite particular generativity of the flesh. You sense and think. I resonate and react. Both are we continuously transforming and transmuting. Because of this generative character of experience, it becomes both problematic and challenging to manifest, to transmit and to analyze individual sonic sensations. At this point, the aforementioned cultural technique of narrating, of poetry and of art becomes crucial as method. Imagination might be and has been for ages manifested and articulated in artifacts that evoke those imaginations. Not arguments, not logically connected chains of signs and characters, but ones that bear all the richness of our experience. Narrations that manage to transmit an experiential depth and density to any person close enough to our cultural sphere. This skill to invent and to construct such poetic, truly new artifacts is what I call generativity. This concept, previously smuggled into this chapter, originates from the sociology of aging by Carlat and in parallel from the study of generative principles in the arts by Hay. Both fields used this concept to refer to the erudite and mature ability to bring something into the world that effectively activates, inspires and motivates others. Generativity is a much more open concept than, for instance, neighboring ones like creativity, productivity or even work. Concepts that are so deeply rooted in 19th century concepts of industrial production and Eurocentric cultural hegemony that one could easily be witnessing them disappear as major concepts in the next decades. The most prominent example of a highly generative and imaginative writing on sound might be the sonic fiction of Kodvo Ashun. Writing a sonic fiction requires a sensory exploration into the process of sound and into one's individual appropriation of modes of listening, as well as into one's idiosyncratic sonic experiences and imaginations. Ashun, his colleague Steve Goodman and Mutatis Mutandis, also the sound artist and sound art scholar Salome Vöglin, are so far, the most prolific writers and researchers who apply this approach of sonic and sensory fictions. Rich with knowledge, experience and versatility, and such as rich in suggestions, imaginations, in fantasies and unsettling dreams. These are exactly the sources too often neglected in lococentric writing on sound, which, however, provide ways of understanding how various listeners experience sonic environments very differently. For instance, how Kodvo Eshun listens to the phonofictions inherent in the vinyl records issued by the three-person collective known as 
Underground Resistance or UR. Quote, In UR, a constantly proliferating series of sonic scenarios take the place of lyrics. Sonic fictions. Phono fictions generate a landscape extending out into possibility space. These give the overwhelming impression that the record is an object from the world it releases. This interface between sonic fiction and track, between concept and music, isn't one of fictions versus reality or truth versus falsity. Sonic fiction is the packaging which works by sensation transference from outside to inside. The front sleeve, the back sleeve, the gatefold, the inside of the gatefold, the record itself, the label, the CD cover, sleeve notes, the CD itself. All of these are surfaces for concepts, texture platforms for phonofictions. Concept feeds back into sensation, acting as a subjectivity engine, a machine of subjectivity that peoples the world with audio hallucinations. Parliament populates the world with cartoon universes. Sun Ra seeds the world with composition planets. Scientists reprograms the positioning of satellites, setting all chronosystems to warp time. End of quote. Ashun takes us right into his personal machinery of imagination and immersion, which is triggered by the sound productions of underground resistance. He introduces us to what I termed a narrative immersion in the above, a sensation transference by means of the materiality of all the details in such a record. Or, as the title of the quoted paragraph states, Sonic fiction is a subjectivity engine. A material engine that is connected to your listening body, to your incorporated idiosyncratic imagination, your sonic corpus. Generativity in action. For sound studies, in general, the potential of ambitious and poetically suggestive narration lies in exactly this transference of sensation. The individual but also highly intersubjective interpretation of sonic situations as presented by Eshun, by Goodman, but also by Schwartz or Vögelin, might be analyzed via its ripples on the imagination of a particular highly responsive listener. A sonic fiction is manifest in an artwork, in a sound piece, in a conceptual sketches or in any fiction in any medium the listener likes to choose. The contact between the listening researcher and the sound-emitting situation or constellation generates this machine of imagination, this subjectivity engine. An engine that manifests sonic traces, that makes it possible to come closer to the specific trajectories and signatures of how a specific sound performance proceeds, tumbles and turns. Sounding and listening become apparent as an integrated aggregation that is only thinkable and operationable in cohesion, in corporeal listening and sound. The researcher's as listener is 
then the best and, by now, the only reliable instrument of measuring personal effects by auditory experiences. An individual sonic persona thus unfolds his or her individual approach to the sounding world by applying imaginative thinking in the form of sonic fiction as a method to transfer sensation by means of a poetic or narrative immersion. The Generativity of the Flesh As you have been reading this chapter, at least one other soundscape did surround both you, your reading and your understanding and doubts concerning my thoughts on sonic thinking. Or were there many different sonic environments? A quite different amount of noises, a number of annoying and possibly distracting or even disturbing sounds, a wide variety of non-anti or unsounds did also accompany my efforts of conceiving, researching, writing and revising this chapter. These noises and annoyances Listening experiences and sonic discoveries, I have tried to grant access to this chapter. Quote, sometimes someone will know all the ways there are for people to be resembling someone, sometimes then will have a complete history of everyone. End of quote. Not only to exemplify the material effect such sounds might have on a person, but also to perforate my own text and its argument with sonically erratic moments. They can now and then seem irrelevant, maybe they make you furious, but nevertheless they act as truly generative in the course of an argument, representing the generativity of the flesh. A generativity that integrates spatial, corporeal, post-logocentric and imaginative modes of reflecting, sounding and listening. This chapter surely appeared to lose track at some points. As I finish writing this sentence, a police car with its easily recognizable siren is driving by, and then this chapter tried to get back on it. A bit later, a series of huge motorcycles follow. Thinking with, through and beyond sounds. My laptop's hard drive is still forming the grey and clicking general bass. Resonating, generating, reflecting. Researching on sounds while being immersed in these sounds. Extracts from the making of Americans. Repeating then is in everyone. In everyone, their being and their feeling and their way of realizing everything and everyone comes out of them in repeating. More and more then, everyone comes to be clear to someone. Slowly, everyone in continuous repeating, to their minutest variation, comes to be clearer to someone. Everyone, whoever was or is or will be living, sometimes will be clearly realized by someone. Sometime there will be an ordered history of everyone. Slowly, every kind of one comes into ordered recognition. More and more than it is wonderful in living, the subtle variations coming clear into ordered recognition, coming to make everyone a part of some kind of them, some kind of men and women. Repeating then is in everyone. Everyone then comes sometime to be clearer to someone. 
sometime there will be then an orderly history of everyone whoever was or is or will be living. It happens very often that a man has it in him, that a man does something, that he does it very often, that he does many things when he's a young man, when he's an old man, when he's an older man. One of such of these kind of them had a little boy, and this one, the little son, wanted to make a collection of butterflies and beetles, and was all exciting to him, and was all arranged then. And then the father said to the son, you are certain this is not a cruel thing that you are wanting to be doing, killing things to make collections of them? And the son was very disturbed then, and they talked about it together, the two of them. And more and more they talked about it then. And then at last the boy was convinced it was a cruel thing, and he said he would not do it. And his father said the little boy was a noble boy to give up pleasure when it was a cruel one. The boy went to bed then, and then the father, when he got up in the early morning, saw a wonderfully beautiful moth in the room. And he caught him, and he killed him, and he pinned him, and he woke up his son then and showed it to him. And he said to him, see what a good father I am to have caught and killed this one. The boy was all mixed up inside him, and then he said he would go on with his collecting. And that was all there was then of discussing, and this is a little description of something that happened once, and it is very interesting. Family living can go on existing. Very many are remembering this thing, are remembering that family living can go on existing. Very many are quite certain that family living can go on existing. Very many are remembering that they are quite certain that family living can go on existing. Any family living going on existing is going on and everyone can come to be a dead one, and they are then not any more living in that family living, and that family is not then existing, if they are not then any more having come to be living. Any family living is existing, if there are some more being living, when very many have come to be dead ones. Family living can be existing if not everyone in the family living has come to be a dead one. Family living can be existing if there have come to be some existing who have not come to be dead ones. Family living can be existing, and there can be some who are not completely remembering any such thing. Family living can be existing, and there can be some who have been completely remembering such a thing. Family living can be existing, and there can be some remembering something of such a thing. Family living can be existing, and some can come to be old ones, and then dead ones, and some can have them quite expecting some such thing. Family living can be existing, and some can come to be old ones, and not yet dead ones, and some can be remembering something of some such thing. Family living can be existing, and someone can come to be an old one, and some can come to be a pretty old one, and some can come to be completely expecting such a thing, and completely remembering expecting such a thing. Family living can be existing, and everyone can come to be a dead one, and not anyone then is remembering any such thing. Family living can be existing, and everyone can come to be a dead one, and some are remembering some such thing. Family living can be existing, and anyone can come to be a dead one, and everyone is then a dead one, and they are then not anymore being living. Any old one can come to be a dead one. Every old one can come to be a dead one. Any family being existing is one having some being then not having come to be a dead one. Any family living can be existing when not everyone has come to be a dead one. Everyone in a family living having come to be dead ones, some
some are remembering something of some such thing. Some being living, not having come to be dead ones, can be ones being in a family living. Some being living and having come to be old ones can come then to be dead ones. Some being living and being in a family living and coming then to be old ones can come then to be dead ones. Anyone can be certain that some can remember such a thing. Any family living can one being, being existing and some can remember something of some such thing.